So, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join in them, that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to the human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, how would you live if you knew that the world was going to end suddenly at some point in the next seven days? Imagine that you didn't know the exact moment it would come, but you were guaranteed that at some point in this next seven-day window, this world we live in would come suddenly to an end. If you knew that, how would you live? How would you spend these next couple of days? Uh, maybe you'd try to squeeze in as much pleasure and partying as you could. There's an important relic of Western culture from the early 21st century uh, known as evolution. Uh, it's a great movie, very highbrow stuff, as you can probably tell from the poster. And in it, there's an alien invasion, and it's looking like the world is going to end. And so how do people respond? They throw a huge party, and you can see one person running around with a huge sign, I can't die a virgin. Maybe that's how you'd spend your last couple of days if you knew the end was near. Or maybe you'd have other things on your list, I don't know. But over the past six weeks, we've been working through the book of First Peter, and in today's passage, Peter helps us to think about what it looks like to live well in light of the imminent end of the world. Peter's message is just the kind that you could imagine painted on a cardboard sign on a downtown street corner. The end of all things is near. It's a very scary message, isn't it? But of course, there's no alien invasion to speak of in First Peter. So what exactly is he talking about? Well, answering that question is actually key to unlocking this whole passage. So let's dive in and see what Peter means when he talks about that phrase. 
the end of all things is near. Now, first up, we need to be crystal clear about what Peter does not mean. Peter is not giving us a prediction about exactly when the end of the world will come. He's not saying on this date, at this time, this is when it's all going to wrap up. No, not at all. Notice that there's no date mentioned in the passage. As sometimes you do have so-called prophets who will predict the end of the world is going to end on such and such a date. That's actually happened many times in the last few decades, countless times throughout the centuries. But that is not what Peter is saying. On the contrary, Peter is saying the end of all things is near. What he means is the end of all things is imminent. Not that it's going to happen at this time, but that it could happen at any time. At any moment, it's always right around the corner. Now, you might be asking, why is, so, why is Peter so confident about that? How does he know that? Well, here's the thing. Peter wrote this letter uh, in about the year 63 AD, give or take. So that's about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And in that final year before Jesus died, Peter had a conversation with him. Jesus had been telling Peter and the other disciples about how Jesus is going to come again in judgment and salvation. And Peter and the other disciples, clearly and understandably curious, wanted to know when that was going to happen. So they asked him and they said, this is Matthew 24 verse 3, they said, when will this happen, Jesus? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus gives quite an extended response, but a key part of his response in Matthew 24, is that his return will happen suddenly and no one will see it coming. Check out what he says in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. That's Jesus talking about himself, the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it'll be, Jesus says, at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying that he's going to come suddenly. Like a thief in the night, out of nowhere, people won't expect it. And this is why, because Jesus says this, this is why you should be massively skeptical Anytime you see a supposed Christian leader or prophet predicting that the end of the world is is going to come in a certain year. It's happened so many times and they've all been wrong, which should come as no surprise because Jesus literally told us about that day or hour no one knows. Don't waste time trying to predict some future date because it could happen at any moment. And so Jesus goes on to talk about the fact that we need to be always ready because of that. And so that is what Peter has in mind 30-odd years later when he wrote this letter to a group of Christians in the first century AD, and he told them, he reminded them, the end of all things is near. He's not giving a date, he's not giving a prediction about exactly when it's going to happen, but he's saying Jesus' return could be at any moment. It could be another 2,000 years from now, or it could be this Tuesday at 12.37pm while you're on your lunch break. Wouldn't that be awesome? Maybe it depends on what you're doing at your lunch break. It could be seven million years from now, or it could be seven minutes. I might not get to finish this sermon. This is why Richard Baxter said, I preached as never sure to preach again, 
as a dying man to dying men. Every sermon might be my last. You and I are always standing on the brink of eternity. Some of us in this room might live to the ripe old age of 100. In a room this size, some of us might not make the rest of the year. No one knows the day or hour, which means that for each one of us, the end of all things is near, it's close at hand. Uh, and this is it's such a foundational truth, really, for living the Christian life. And it's helpful for us to be able to visual, visualize this so that we can see our lives in this bigger picture about where we stand. So here's our, uh, our present life, this present timeline, uh, with the cross of Jesus behind us and the arrow going forwards into the future. That's, this is life in our present age as we know it. But Jesus says that we're always on the brink of the end of this present age. The age to come that will last forever. It could come at any time. And now, in Jesus' first coming, something very important happened. When Je- Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but when he rose from the dead, that was the beginning of a new age, a new era. In his resurrection, he kick-started the new creation, the age to come that's going to last forever. And so right now, we live in the overlap of the ages, We live in this present age, and yet Jesus is already risen, ascended, seated at the right hand of God. So that's what happened in Jesus' first coming, but in his second coming, that is when this present age is going to come to an end. Jesus is going to come in judgment to judge the living and the dead. And from that point, some will spend eternity in the new creation in glory with him, and others will spend eternity facing God's judgment in hell. That's what Jesus teaches is going to happen when he comes again. And that's what Peter means when he says, the end of all things is near. We're right on the moment. We're right on the edge. It could be, we don't know when it's going to be, do we? The end of all things is near. What does he mean? He means Jesus' return to judge the living and dead could happen any moment. Now, if, if that's true, and if you and I are living on the cusp of eternity, if that's true, then that means that there is such a thing as a life lived foolishly on the cusp of eternity, which is what Peter unpacks in verses 1 to 6. And there is such a thing as a life lived well, which is what he unpacks in verses 7 to 11. So let's have a look at each in turn. Because it might make a big difference in how we end up spending our next week. And it might make a big difference in how we end up acting and what we end up doing when Jesus happens to return. Firstly, let's look at a life lived foolishly on the cusp of eternity. Uh, Have a look in your Bibles with me at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they don't want to live the rest of their lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's Jesus. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. P. 
Peter is saying that there is a kind of life that makes no sense as a Christian who is living on the cusp of eternity. And you could sum up that lifestyle as living the rest of your life for evil human desires. A life of debauchery, lust, drunkenness. You might be thinking, I've got no idea what debauchery is. It's basically summed up in what everything else in that list mentions. Peter points out for the Christians that he's writing to, that's the way they used to live. They actually had a strong history of living this way. Because before they knew Jesus, they lived just like the rest of the world does. But Peter says, once you know Jesus, once you know that the end of all things is near, it doesn't make sense to live that way anymore. Notice in verse 1, he says, if you've suffered with Christ, he's writing to Christians who have suffered, surely that's been a reminder and a wake-up call that you don't live like the rest of the world. If they've turned their back on you and and thrown scorn on you, they see you as different because you're a Christian, surely that should be a wake-up call that you shouldn't be living like them any longer. That's what's going on in verse 1. Because if Jesus died, if Jesus rose from the dead, and if he could return any moment, it changes everything. That changes our priorities, doesn't it? You know, if you knew this world was ending in seven days, or some point within the next seven days, and what was waiting for you on the other side of that is an infinite joy beyond what anything in this world can offer. If you are looking forward to that and saying, bring it on, I can't wait, If you're looking to that, why would you spend your last few days, the last week of your life, pursuing the far inferior pleasures of sin that are only going to leave a bad taste in your mouth? Peter says it just doesn't make sense. Now, for someone who doesn't know Jesus, a life of lust and drunkenness at least might have something going for it. You know, I mean, if this short and meaningless life is all there is, well, maybe you might as well try to live it up in the meantime. Try squeeze as much you can out of this life. You know, it's, it's a bit depressing to think about it too deeply, so might as well try to distract yourself with drink and short-term pleasures. Maybe that's got something going for it if you don't know Jesus. But once we've seen what Jesus has to offer, it just doesn't make any sense. We live differently. None of us do this perfectly, of course, But the more we fix our eyes on Jesus, the more we're willing to give up the short-term pleasures in the here and now, not because we're killjoys, but because our eyes are fixed on a far greater joy to come. But of course, that's not how those around us are always going to see it, is it? Notice what Peter says in verse 4. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. And I know a guy who who talks about his work trips where everyone would get totally plastered and then they'd all head off to the strip club. And as the one Christian on his team, he'd feel like a total outsider because he wouldn't join in. And they'd make fun of him for it. They'd mock him for it. As Christians, we will face scorn and mockery because we choose to live differently. And that's not always easy, is it? It's sometimes hard, which is why we need to have our vision lifted to that bigger picture, isn't it? To put our lives in perspective. That's why Peter in verse 5 reminds them once again. What does he say? But they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. He's lifting their eyes to that bigger reality. 
Jesus could return any moment. And that changes our perspective. It changes our priorities. Now, of course, even that idea, that idea that Jesus is going to come again and it could be at any moment, I mean, even that is something that people will mock us for. In 2 Peter 3, which we looked at, uh, which we're looking at just last Wednesday and this coming Wednesday in hub groups, Peter writes that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, Jesus promised? Ever since our Father's Day, everything goes on it has since the beginning of creation. So they're mocking Christians for believing in this so-called second coming. They're saying, do you really think Jesus is going to come again? That's stupid. Everything's just been going on like it has forever, and it's just going to keep on going. So why not live it up? And to add to that criticism, keep in mind that Peter is writing this letter, you know, 30-odd years since Jesus had that conversation with Peter and since Jesus rose from the dead. And in that 30-year period, some Christians would have died. And you can imagine people saying, look how foolish you Christians are. Here you are living in light of Jesus' so-called second coming. Meanwhile, you're dying just like the rest of us. Your fate, Christian, is no different. Look, at you guys die from sickness just like we do. Why not at least live it up in the meantime? But in response to that, Peter says, no, our fate is different. Those who have died in Christ will live. That's what's going on in verse 6. It's a bit of a weird verse. Have a look. 1 Peter 4, verse 6. He says, For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, that is, Christians who have died since Jesus' first coming, so that, yes, they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body. You know, our bodies die just like everyone else's. But because the gospel is preached to us, we, we might live according to God in the Spirit. We'll live forever in the age to come. So yes, Peter's saying we're going to be scorned and mocked. But for someone who knows Jesus, if the end of all things is near, then it will be foolish to live the rest of our lives for evil human desires. Earlier, I mentioned a quote from Richard Baxter about preaching as unsure to ever preach again as a dying man to dying men. And that quote is from a poem he wrote called, A Life Still Near to Death. Uh, Let me read a slightly larger portion from the start of the poem. Uh, the The language is pretty old school, but I think you'll still get the vibe. He writes, A life still near to death did me possess with a deep sense of time's great preciousness. To lose an hour, I thought a greater loss than much of sordid worldlings' golden dross. I thought them mad that cast their time away, being uncertain of another day, that idly prate and play and feast and drink so near eternity's most dreadful brink, with filthy guilty souls unjustified, undone forevermore if thus they died." And yet, update the language, and that could be written today, couldn't it? It could be written on our university campuses, in our workplaces, to fool around with play and feast and drink so near eternity's most dreadful brink. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, and yet you're still choosing to live that way, wake up. Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. 
And you don't want to be caught off guard. If you're here tonight and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, take action. We're so glad you're here and that you're curious or maybe open to investigating him. But please don't delay. Don't just treat it as a thing in the background to maybe think about more seriously one day. Be urgent. Make it a priority to get clear on who Jesus really is and make sure that you're right with him. Don't put it off. Don't sit on the fence forever because the tipping point into forever could come much, much sooner than you think. The end of all things is near. And therefore, there's such a thing as a life lived foolishly on the cusp of eternity. But there's also a life lived well on the cusp of eternity. And according to Peter, that life is one characterized by prayer, by love, by hospitality, and by serving. Have a look in your Bibles with me at verses 7 to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So notice Peter is showing us what a Christian community looks like, one that is deeply shaped by an awareness that Jesus' return could come any moment. It's one characterized by praying, Verse 7, by, by loving each other deeply, by offering hospitality to one another, and by using whatever gifts we've received to serve others. But notice that all of these flow out of verse 7. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near, therefore, be alert and of sober mind that you may pray, and then it continues. So we've got to ask, what is that therefore doing? How does knowing that the end of all things is near lead us to being alert and of sober mind so that we'll pray? Well, uh, as some of you will know, well-known pastor and author Tim Keller died just over a week ago uh, after a three-year-long battle with pancreatic cancer. And about six months ago, I was listening to an interview with him, and he shared his personal experience of the therefore in this passage, his experience of the strong connection between knowing that the end is near and how that drives us to pray. So let me quote from him um, at length. He said, "Uh, this is going to sound like an exaggeration, but my wife and I would never want to go back to the prayer life that we had before the cancer. Never. I spent all my life saying that you can have communion with God and you can experience the real presence of God in a satisfying way. And I'd experienced some of that, but, but Kathy, that's his wife. Kathy and I, and I are having a far deeper prayer life now since the diagnosis. When I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, it changed my perspective. Everyone knows they're going to die, but everyone represses that and lives as though they're not going to die. But when I was diagnosed three years ago with pancreatic cancer, the first thing the doctor said was, you are going to die of this. It's sooner or later because we don't have a cure for it. And I realized at that moment, I never really did believe I was going to die. 
At some deep level, I just didn't. And looking back on it, I don't know if there's any way to really go through the change that happens when you know you really are going to die. The way you look at your time, the way you look at God, the way you look at your spouse, the way you look at everything just changes when you realize time is limited and I am mortal. What's the connection between knowing that the end of all things is near and being alert and of sober mind to pray? Well, it's that we, when we grasp the fact that time is limited and that we are mortal, as he puts it, when we grasp that the end could come at any time, whether it's from Jesus returning or us getting hit by a bus tomorrow, that gives us a more accurate perspective. It wakes us up to reality. Of course, we all know that we're mortal intellectually. We all know that. We all know our time is limited in our heads. And yet, if you're anything like me, we easily forget it. We repress it. We easily fall into the trap of living like the end is not near. We easily find ourselves living with our heads in the sand and we live foolishly. We live out of sync with what we know to be true. I absolutely struggle with that and I'm sure you do too. Tim Keller goes on in that interview to say that sometimes it's only something like a terminal diagnosis that can wake us up to that reality. And he wishes that he'd had that perspective when he was younger so that he could have lived better. It's like the prayer in Psalm 90 verse 12, the prayer to God that says, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. God, please help us to realize, not just to know intellectually, but to feel and to grasp that our days are numbered, so that we'd have a wise perspective to live well. You know, I must say, this has been on my mind a lot over the past six months, particularly because of our brother Mike. You know, Mike being diagnosed in October with pancreatic cancer is something there is no cure for. Uh, we don't know if he'll last two more years or two months. But we do know that in not too long, he's going to be standing with Jesus in glory. And for me, that's been a real wake-up call. Friends, you and I are mortal. He was perfectly healthy until the day that things went downhill very quickly. Time is short. The end is near. Are you living like it? God, teach us to number our days. Give us a heart of wisdom. Help us to live well on the cusp of eternity. Because you see, the more we grasp that the end of all things is near, the more that will lead us to be alert and of sober-minded, clear thought, so that we would want to pray. You know, that's why we're having this prayer night tomorrow for, for Mike and his family. The, the more we grasp that the end of all things is near, the more it will lead us to want to love each other deeply. Because just as God has covered our sins through Jesus' death in our place, so we'll want to show that same attitude to others. The more we grasp that the end of all things is near, the more it will lead us to want to show hospitality to others to be generous to others, just as God has been generous to us, to welcome the outsider and the stranger, to, to seek to point them to Jesus so that they can spend eternity with us, with Him. The more we grasp the end of all things is near, the more it will lead us to use whatever gifts 
we have to receive others. As faithful stewards who have received grace from God and who want to extend God's grace to other people as well. Brothers and sisters, that is a life well lived on the cusp of eternity. That's the kind of life that Tim Keller lived. It's the kind of life that Mike Horgan is living even now. And it's the kind of life that Jesus is calling you and me to live as well. There's so much richness in this passage that we don't have time to cover in detail, but as we draw a close, have a look at how Peter finishes this section in verse 11. He's given these practical commands on love and hospitality, on on serving in the strength that God provides, but, but why do all of that? Well, the second half of verse 11, we do it so that, this is the reason, the purpose, the goal to fix our eyes on, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Notice how once again, Peter draws our mind to that bigger picture, to eternity to come, where we're going to be basking in and giving glory and power to God forever and ever. That is the future that he wants to draw our attention to. That's the future that we're on the cusp of. That's the story that our lives are part of. That's the grand culmination that we're all headed for. And when we have that perspective, that's what's going to shape and motivate us to be a people of prayer and of love and hospitality and service. That, That grand perspective of God's glory for all eternity to come, that's what will shape our lives in the present. About 10 years ago, uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And in that book, in 2013, he shares about a time earlier in his life when he was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Now, thyroid cancer is a much less serious form of cancer than the fatal one he would later develop, but he still needed surgery to deal with it. And this is what he wrote, uh, reflecting on that time when he got that diagnosis and had to go in for surgery. He says, of course, my whole family and I were shaken by it all and deeply anxious. On the morning of my surgery, after I said my goodbyes to my wife and sons, I was wheeled into a room to be prepped. At the moments before they gave me the anesthetic, I prayed. And to my surprise, I got a sudden, clear, new perspective on everything. It seemed to me that the universe was an enormous realm of joy and mirth and high beauty. Of course it was. Didn't the triune God make it to be filled with his own boundless joy, wisdom, love, and delight? And within this great globe of glory, there was only one little speck of darkness, our world, where there was temporarily pain and suffering. But it was only one speck, and that speck would soon fade away, and everything would be light. And in that moment, I thought, it doesn't really matter how the surgery goes. Everything will be all right. Me, my wife, my children, my church will be all right. Because brothers and sisters, we are living on the cusp of eternity. The end of all things is near. And we know that the end is a good one. Jesus wins. 
So let's fix our eyes on him, put our trust in him, and live for him as we wait for that day, whether that's 10,000 years from now, or whether it's Tuesday at 12.37 p.m. on your lunch break. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty Father, we praise you as a God who is worthy of all glory and honor and power and might. You created this universe not because you needed anything from us, but to give to us. And Father, in this little speck of darkness in this world where we temporarily experience pain and suffering, Father, it can be so easy to lose sight of the bigger picture. Father, forgive us for the times that we lose sight of Jesus. We lose sight of his coming and we live just like the world around us. Father, thank you that there is grace for that. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and trust in him and walk in the free forgiveness he offers. Father, help us to be a people who are shaped by prayer and love and hospitality and service to build others up and to bring them in as many as possible before the day that Jesus returns, whenever that is. And Father, for some of us here today who aren't yet sure where they stand with Jesus, please, Father, give them a clear view of who he is, of who he claims to be. Father, help us all to put our trust in him and have life in his name forever and ever. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.